Um, I never thought I would be starting a company and became the assistant chief marketing officer at Coca-Cola, another big company. And wow, I a life altering mistake. Uh, do you know how much they ended up selling for? I don't even want to tell you. It's I want to hear it. Come on, give me a range. Give me a range. That's the difference between a house and a yacht. <laughs> hey, those guys are working today. So that is a painfully brutal lesson that you've just given our audience. And I don't want to skip over it. Welcome to the Scaling Edge. This is a podcast where we uh, talk to entrepreneurs that decided to do that to themselves. We try to figure out what's in their minds, what's working, what's not working, and how can we get a hold of that edge? How can we grab a piece of that edge to help scale businesses? Um, and a lot of those edges come from unsuspecting sources, not marquee Madison Avenue firms, not the biggest actual moguls in the space, but the people behind the moguls, the mavens that run the moguls, the, the, the ones that do the dirty jobs, to get the dirty jobs done, the people that do the things to move the mountains to help entrepreneurs win. So today, I'm very proud to announce that we have Paige on the shows on the show from Mavens and Moguls. She's amazing. And we're going to hear a little bit about her stories, um, a little bit about how she got to where she is today, and then see what kind of angles and edges she can provide to you so you can uh, scale your business better with the Scaling Edge. Paige, welcome to the show. I am your host, Michael Brooks. Thank you for being a part of our program. We appreciate it. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here today. So we're thrilled to have you. So let's uh, let's start, right? Um, can you give us a little background about how you became the maven behind the moguls? <laughs> it was a long, circuitous route to get here. Um, I never thought I would be starting a company. When I was a student, I wanted to be Meg Whitman when I grew up. I wanted to run a big Fortune 500 company. I started my marketing career at Procter & Gamble, which is a big Fortune 500 company. I then became the assistant chief marketing officer at Coca-Cola, another big company. Wow. And I, I was on the path to run a big multinational corporation. And that was really what I thought I would be doing with my life. Well, real quick. Uh, you were not in charge of New Coke. That was not your brand. Right? Uh, but my boss was responsible for New How? Coke. I, I, this cheap really? Company. Yeah. Anyway, for people that don't know, New Coke was the worst marketing advertising decision. It is like, uh, it is the Michael Jordan of blunders. I mean, if you look at Coca-Cola from a branding perspective, it is the most recognizable brand on the moon. On the on in the world, if they were marketing on the moon, Coca Cola would be the name on there. Um, and then you also mentioned Meg Whitman, just to let everybody know, uh, Meg Whitman was the CEO of eBay, um, and she really was responsible for for launch, taking eBay from I think like twelve employees to the behemoth it once was, and now still very much is. Um, and she was there, very important. I think her biggest impact was she oversaw the acquisition of PayPal, which was amazing. I met Meg Whitman once. I, I uh, uh, donated to her a campaign when she was running for governor. Too bad she didn't win. I think she would have fixed California, but, you know, uh, hashtag politics. All right, please continue, Paige. 
So, um, you know, I really thought I was on a big company path in my career and in my life. Um, while I was working at Coca-Cola um, as the number two marketing person globally, um, you know, as you said, Coke's sold in over 200 countries around the world. It's the most recognized brand in the world. Um, the Internet started to take off. This was like 1997. And I kind of got bitten by the dot-com bug. I'm reading about all these hot startups. And I just got kind of insanely curious about what was going on. And having had a much more traditional risk-averse path in life, I decided to leave my cushy corporate job and go join a startup in Los Angeles. Ooh, what so was I the uh, launch media, launch media, launch.com, okay. which was back in, it was kind of like the legal Napster. It was in that, that world. Um, we ended up going public, uh, about less than two years later, wow. um, and got sold to Yahoo and it became Yahoo music. Um, and then, uh, my husband got a job on the East coast and we moved back to the East coast and I did another startup as the head of marketing and about a year and a half later, it got sold to Bertelsmann, which is the largest privately held media company in the world. Then I did another startup as the head of marketing. Um, and we went public and we were sold. So I had, I call them my three base hits. Um, I made a little bit of money three times. I'm not Sheryl Sandberg. I did not make, you know, $2 billion working for, you know, LinkedIn and Google and Facebook, but I, I did okay. Um, well, I'd say you did a, more than okay. Look, a, a, a lot of entrepreneurs and startups, they don't have any of the breadth of experience that you do. I mean, uh, the I mean, working with the most iconic brand in the world, um, actually getting a company to public, enjoying a liquidity event, that's what a lot of people would want to do. And I don't think they quite understand the type of uh, landmines through that process, right? You're smiling because I, I, you probably have a few missing toes. <laughs> Tell I me about your missing toes. Tell me about the biggest landmine, the biggest upset, the greatest pain that you got to enjoy through your process. Wow. I mean, I can't tell you how many business plans I read and how many kind of toads I kissed looking for the three startups that I ended up joining. Um, it was, you know, Internet 1.0 in the mid to late 90s. And it was just a feeding frenzy. I mean, I had people calling me, offering me insane jobs that sight unseen after the first startup went public and was sold. Um, people were offering me these ridiculous jobs and they didn't even know me. And I thought, this is a major red flag. If they make decisions like this, uh. this is not a company like I know I'm this good. They don't know I'm that good. And if they're being this willy nilly, like this is the last place I want to join. And a lot of those companies never survived. Um, yeah. And I guess my biggest lesson in all of this is don't be greedy. Um, you know, it's OK to leave a little money on the table. You don't have to get every nickel off the table in these deals. When my the first startup I worked for, we had a very good offer on the table for about a half a billion dollars. And the two founders thought it was a billion dollar idea. 
And um, they walked away. And then when we went public and we were sold, we didn't get anything close to a half a billion dollars. I mean, again, we made money, but I would just tell people, um, you know, don't get greedy. And, um, you know, they're just, they're, there's so many great opportunities out there that people just don't do their homework or don't. Um, well, look, you they, make a great point that I think you're skipping over, right? You just dropped a nugget that I picked up on and that's market conditions. If you go in and you're looking at working with someone and the market condition says, we'll hire you no matter what, uh, you have a, a pulse you know, <laughs> and a resume, sit down, please do something for us. We have too much cash and we can't, we can't hire people. Um, you're looking at a red flag, right? If you're That's not going cool. through a series of interviews and you're not being curated to find if you're right fit the culture, that means you're, you're, you're part of a, you're part of a wave and strike when the iron's hot. That's the best time to sell a company. Those guys that were, could have sold for a half a half a yard, which, you know, would have earned a lot more now. Um, yeah. They made a life altering mistake. Uh, do you know how much they ended up selling for? I don't even want to tell you. It's I want to hear it. Come on. Give me a range. Give me a range. Like under $20 million. Under 20. That's a $480 million swing. Split against two guys, right? Two partners. And then. Oh, no. I mean, there were five of us in the prospectus that would have benefited tremendously. But, you know, it is what it That's is. That's the difference between a house and a yacht. <laughs> hey, those guys are working today. So that is a painfully brutal lesson that you've just given our audience. And I don't want to skip over it. Being no, too greedy. I mean, I being too greedy is, is, is nasty. And I'll tell you what, I didn't have an exit anywhere near that, but taking an honest look at where you are in the market and an honest look at how the market is behaving is something that people don't look at. And I would have had a life altering decision at a time, which ultimately is probably best that it didn't happen, but um, it could have. And it would have been a big move because the market was hot. I got an offer for a company a long time ago. I thought it was worth a lot more. Seriously consider offers when the market's hot. Seriously consider it. But the problem is, Paige, people consider our offers the most when they're desperate at the 20 million instead of the 500 million. Because when the chips are down, they're like, oh, I don't know, this is never going to happen for me. But when things are running hot, that's the time. That's the time to take your clip. Sorry for interrupting. Exciting. Now, Please continue. Well, I was going to tell you. So the second of the three companies was the one that got sold to a private company. Um, and that of the three was my biggest win, to be brutally honest. When you sell to a private company, they cut you a check at closing and you can go take it to the bank and deposit it. When you go public and you're listed in the prospectus, you're locked up for six months. And when you can start selling stock, the market may have cooled off. Um, the tide could have shifted. And so people were very impressed that I was involved with, you know, two kind of higher profile IPOs. But at the end of the day, the one that made me the most money is the one that was completely under the radar. And, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. And sometimes it's better to go private than go public, <laughs> to be brutally honest. Um. 
Yeah, that is nice. And I'll tell you, I, I ran into that with a situation. I'm in an entrepreneur group and I have a, a guy in this group and he's selling his little Shopify website. I mean, ultimately he's got nice products on there, but he didn't invent Shopify. You know, he's got some products and some home products and they're nice and people were getting hot returns and multiples, but he blew away the market. Somebody was said, Hey, look, I think I can get you five times profit for your Shopify. He wanted 17 times projected profit, which is insane. And I'm like, dude, but look, you didn't, this is, if you do this now and you go take this, you can get that exit. That's an exit you can get done. That's not going to be months and months and months of let's scrutinize everything you do. And then sure enough, he turned it down. And then he just complained through our, through our group about he hates bankers and they're mean and, and they're, they're doing all this stuff and they're stopping him from these other things. And he's totally taking his time and attention. And I just responded, uh, so bankers were nice to you. <laughs> hey, yeah, I don't know. we haven't had a meeting since he was a little sensitive, but, but to your point, people get greedy and they don't get focused. They don't say, they don't reflect on the honest value of something. And they think they have something that's worth more than it is when it's, if you can move, you move. If it's a good time and it's a, if it's a good market and you can sell, you take the offer because 80%, I read in William J. O'Neill's book, he was the founder of Investment Business Daily a long time ago, 80% of a stock's value, which is essentially a company's value, is being in the right market and you're going to get the most value at the right time. So People have this, uh, they forget easily. I don't think you forget. I think you've got a good I, I memory. People overinflate kind of their uh, smarts and their contribution to success. And they don't spend enough time, I think, doing the postmortem when things break down or when things fail. And so I think you have to be kind of brutally honest in the good times and realize sometimes timing, it, it is about timing. It is about all road, all boats rising when the, when the tide's up. Yeah. And sometimes the best time to raise money is when you don't need it as much. Like you said, when you're desperate, that's when you're going to get the worst deals. So you're an amazing talent with an amazing story. And, you know, you're not the run of the mill consultant. You've worked with some, I mean, you worked with the, the guy who had, did the new Coke campaign. But he also did Diet Coke, by the way. So the biggest success and the biggest failure ever in marketing. Same guy. Wow. That's a fascinating story. So you got you had direct access and a direct pipe into some major events. I actually think you learn a lot more from your failures than you do from your success. 100%. 100%. So, so you got to take part in that. And and other amazing things. How are you helping companies now with Mavens and Moguls? So our clients range from early stage kind of pre-revenue startups to Fortune 500. We yeah. also work with nonprofit organizations, B2B, B2C. What do you and do I, for these people? How do you so get them to the next level? What edge do you provide to them that helps them scale? So the common denominator in all of this is, you know, who is your audience? What is your value proposition? And what is your story? And why should anybody care? And those marketing basics have never changed. In well, Paige, there's a lot of noise out there. 
there's a, a lot, lot of noise. What I mean, when I can go on ChatGPT and make a hundred articles in an hour, like how do you break through? You say there's a lot of noise, right? How do you break through the noise when everything when it's when it's all noise? When you've got uh you know Tupac, Biggie, Metallica, Indian music, and Bad Bunny all playing at the same time. You know, like how do you create, how do you capture people's attention and and relay authenticity as a marketing expert? How do you so, do that now with that, the madness? That that really is you use the magic word, which is authenticity. Being a brand is about standing out and figuring out what your hook is. Commodities are wallpaper. Commodities <laughs> compete on price. If you're a brand, you stand for something. You have a relationship with your audience, and that brand is what allows you to, to charge a premium. So, you know, in this world of artificial intelligence, um, I think being a brand today is more important than ever because, like you said, if you just go into ChatGPT, it's all kind of wallpaper. It's all the sea of sameness, and there's nothing that really stands out. So what it comes down to is authentic interactions. That is the, that is the, the new currency. That if is the new. That is the is the creating authentic connections and a little bit. The reason why I know about Coke so much is because I read a book called uh, Emotional Branding, which was yeah. all about. Have you read that? Yeah. Great book. Great book. If you tally up all of Coke's assets, I think right now it's around seven hundred fifty million dollars. Like if you're looking at their facilities and their trucks and all all this stuff, but their brand value is over a hundred billion, right? So brand value, as you're mentioning is overlooked today in the tchotchkes. And I look at Shopify, I look at it as like the pop-up economy where people are constantly popping up a new widget and, and getting it out and making a lot of cash, which is great for entrepreneurs, but lasting and making an authentic, but that's it's going away. It's not the same as it was. That has the market cycle, right? Just not too dissimilar to the dot-com. How do you now capture that brand authenticity and how do you connect that to a personal connection and cut through the unbelievable noise that's going on in the world today? So I think it really comes down to really understanding who your customer is and what matters to them and what that connection, what that relationship is. So it's not sexy, it's not glamorous, but it starts with market research. And a lot of companies, they want to skip right to the advertising. They want to do all the bells and whistles and all the celebrity stuff and the TV ads and the TikTok ads. But you got to take a step back and you got to start at the very beginning. And I think starting my career at Procter & Gamble was a real wake-up call because, you know, P&G invented the concept of brand management. And it's not a coincidence that they are the number one and or number two in every category they compete in. So this it's is brilliant. This is brilliant advice. I do disagree. I think it is sexy. I think market research is very sexy. So getting out there, market research, right? How, how do you approach that? How do you, how, what's the actual practical steps you take 
to, to, to learn about who the client is to get that edge. So when I was at P&G, market research was like a nine to 12 month process. You had to write a memo. You had to field your research. It had to be statistically significant. You had to talk to enough people. You had to do quantitative analysis. You had to do qualitative focus groups. I mean, like I said, it took forever. When I was working at the startup companies, we didn't have nine to 12 months and we didn't have those kind of budgets, frankly. Right. And so the first startup that I worked for out in Los Angeles, I would literally grab my team in the morning around the conference table. Everyone would be there with their, you know, big jug of coffee. And we'd throw a million ideas up onto the whiteboard of stuff we needed to get, you know, input on from our audience. This was in the music and entertainment space. Um, and our target audience was predominantly like 18 to 24 year old males that were really into music and pop culture. And our office was in Santa Monica, California, about three blocks from the promenade, the, the kind of, uh, which is beautiful, by the way, if you haven't been there, it is a fantastic spot. Exactly. So in the morning over coffee, we would come up with a bunch of ideas that the creative team would quickly like quick and dirty mock it up um and put together a couple of things that we could put on clipboards and I could station people on the promenade during lunch hour with you know stopping intercepting anybody that looked like they were our target audience audience if it's a guy on a skateboard if it's a guy with piercings and tattoos Hey, can you come over here? I'll throw you some CDs. Can I spend five minutes talking to you? So really? over so two hours. But you, do those do those methods still work today? I think absolutely they work today. But I mean, I'm telling you that for two hours we would. So this is this is man on the street. You're shaking hands absolutely. and you're actually talking to people individually, not just reading reports. No, you're going, hey, let's a, have a conversation. Here's some free stuff. Like? So Tell the, me. The, the point was in the afternoon, we would tally up our results. And before we went home at night, we would have ads up on the website, uh, banner ads, like things that popped up. And we, we could read the data the next morning, which ones got the best click throughs. And we were like real time iterating on a daily basis to get our traffic up, to get the shares up. So you were getting ideas from the street, feeding it to the marketing team, and they were just adjusting the ads accordingly. Exactly. And now fast forward, you know, that was my first startup. I did two more startups and then I hung out my own shingle. Um, I basically, based on the information I got, the conversations that I had and the market research I collected, my business shifted from predominantly retainer business to project-based business. I realized in the Great Recession, people's budget capacity and their approval ability shifted dramatically. It gave me tremendous insight and let me kind of pivot my business. And it's helped me tremendously, not just through the Great Recession, but through COVID. And going forward, we have basically been able to be more relevant today than when I started the business 21 years ago. So market research really is an incredible tool that I highly encourage everyone to talk to your customers. So is that your for, is that the service that you provide companies now? 
Yes, we help them find the right words and pictures to tell compelling stories, to find their audience, to sell more of their products and services faster to make more money. So you help them create the authentic story, find the story, and then convey that to the people that are getting the story out. Bingo. Well, that sounds like an amazing service that can help a lot of people get the scaling edge. Absolutely. Well, Paige, I appreciate you being on the show. Appreciate you being part of our program. Where can people find you to get this kind of help? Uh, Two best places are my website, mavensandmoguls.com, M-A-V-E-N-S-A-N-D-M-O-G-U-L-S.com, or on LinkedIn, it's my name, Paige Arnoff-Fenn with no hyphen. So P-A-I-G-E-A-R-N-O-F-F-E-N-N. And if worst case scenario, if you go to Google and Google Page and Mavens, thank God for search engine optimization, I will pop right up. That's wonderful. Listen, Paige has given some sage advice here today. A lot of people, a lot of companies, they want to go straight for the win, straight for the dollar and skip all of the homework. The foundation that she's discussing is is employed by the most successful companies in the world. So it may sound like it's not very sexy to go doing this kind of work, but the results are, the results are steamy. So thank you, Paige. Thanks for being a part of our program. We appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks, Michael. It's been great. I appreciate the opportunity.